If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, uh, please just uh, turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 18, and starting today and going through until Easter Sunday, and on Easter Sunday, uh, I just want to preach uh, some messages entitled, The Road to the Resurrection. Road to the Resurrection. Uh, we have, and most, most scholars, most pastors, anybody who is a believer, uh, has come to realize and understands that Scripture speaks very clearly to the fact that without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have nothing. Jesus is nothing more at that point than just somebody who had a whole lot of good things to say and at times had a whole lot of difficult things to say. Uh, you will, you know, I, I, there is a movement within Christianity that caught my attention a few years ago. Um, and at, at the surface, it sounded so wonderful. Uh, but essentially, the title of it is Red Letter Christianity. And it is where taking the words of Jesus to be how we ought to live as believers and as Christians in our society. And I thought, you know, that's a, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. At the same time, what also began to happen was there began to be this melding of some of the societal concerns to the expense of other things that Jesus had said that were very, very difficult. They began to reinterpret some of the things that Jesus had said. More specifically, when Jesus began to talk about hell, it be, they began to call into question. But that sort of flies in the face of some other things that Jesus said. The other problem with all of that, that viewpoint was is they began to elevate what Jesus said above some of the other things that we see in Scripture that are found in the book of Romans, that are found in Ephesians, that are found in the New Testament, almost to say that the words of Jesus are more inspired than the words of Paul the Apostle. And unfortunately, folks, when we look at Scripture, we say all Scripture is inspired. One is not more inspired than another just because it was spoken by the Son of God. Every now and then, Jesus said some things that broke in upon some other things that almost sounded contradictory, sounded strange, or it sounded very difficult to handle. And yet, they're not contradictory. They're not things that we look at and say, well, then clearly He doesn't mean this quite as much. Of course, we look at the issue and the topic of hell, and that's not my subject today, and we think, well, certainly that, that can't be so because Jesus was all about love. And yet there were times where Jesus talked to the current culture that he was in, and he had to impress upon them, listen, this is a very real fact. This is something that you must consider and you must understand that it is real, and I am telling you these things. You remember on another occasion, Jesus spoke to his disciples, not just his immediate 12, but those who followed him and those who were going to, or followed him in a greater crowd. They were known as disciples. And yet on one occasion, 
Jesus spoke, and some of those disciples got offended at what he said. Have you ever found somebody get offended at what the Bible states? And they might even be offended at what Jesus has said. Trust me, it's been happening since he arrived on the scene. He got, they got offended and they walked, the Bible says, that they turned and walked with him no more. And Jesus looked at his immediate 12 disciples, those ones that he had handpicked, and he said, you guys going to go too? You see, every now and then it happens that people will get offended at what the Word of God has to say. I don't worry about that so much because it's not my job to convince their heart. It is the Holy Spirit's job. The Holy Spirit is able to come and to cause them to see what God is saying to them. And, and I love what Peter replied to Jesus. Jesus, who else are we going to go to? Who else has the words of eternal life? Jesus said some incredible things. But on the occasion that I want to read to you about, Jesus very resolutely was headed to Jerusalem. And in fact, the events that took place here, I'm not exactly sure. It doesn't really state with any kind of clarity how soon it would be before he would go to the cross. But nonetheless, this was in fact his final prophecy that he would speak to his disciples about what would happen to him. And we're going to pick up in chapter 18 of the book of Luke, and we're going to read from verse, verses 31 through 34. And I want you to see what Jesus has to say. In fact, it is his final prophecy about his death, and quite honestly, it is a... Uh, to show you this, it is a, an event that he already referred to, get this, six times in Luke itself, in this very gospel. Six times. So this is prophecy number seven that's coming at us, and it's coming at these disciples. Now, it's not the larger group of disciples that he says this to, but in fact, the Bible says this, starting at verse 31, it says, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written by the prophets, Old Testament prophets, remember the New Testament hadn't been written yet, so he is referring to everything that was written about him, about the Messiah in the Old Testament. He says it's about to be fulfilled. The Bible goes on and he says this, about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. Verse 32, he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. Here is our road to the resurrection. But wait a minute. Let's read verse 34. The disciples did not understand any of this. Think about that for a minute. I've already just stated that within Luke alone, Jesus has prophesied about this already six times. But still, 
The Bible says they did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. They did not know what he was talking about. We'll get to that in just a moment. But the first thing I want you to understand is this. Already within Luke, six times it has been mentioned, and Jesus has prophesied about the fact that he was going to have to go to the cross, that he would have to suffer, that he would have to die. Now, we know and we have read the, the, the story and we've read the, the prophecies at times. In fact, I want to say uh, a year or two ago, I can't remember exactly when it was that we began to dealt, deal with uh, some of the messianic prophecies and it was sort of leading up to during the time of Christmas and how it was that we would we would see this, this baby that would be born, but some of the things that would be prophesied about Jesus, obviously we think about Isaiah 53 and what it was that, that Isaiah described, that Jesus would be a suffering Savior, that there would be a Messiah that would come, but he would have to suffer a lot of things. Now, I'm told from, from what I understand that even within Judaism today, that is not at all how they interpret Isaiah 53, that there is nothing related to a suffering Messiah that, that is interpreted. And yet we see that the fulfillment of Psalm 22 and we see the fulfillment of Isaiah 53 come true in the life of Jesus. He says this, he says in verse 31, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. Notice that Jesus understood what was written about him in the Old Testament. What was written about him in the prophets he understood everything that was supposed to take place. In fact, he had conveyed this message time and time again to those 12 disciples and possibly others that were around him that he would have to suffer, that he would have to go through these terrible things. He would have to die on the cross, and he always ended with this and be raised back to life. It's an amazing thing. Oftentimes we look around and we, we immediately think of, you know, we approach the season of Easter and yes, we're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but oftentimes the, the cross has become the greater topic. Well, we know that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Sins cannot be done away with without Jesus and the blood that he shed on Calvary being shed. If that didn't happen, there is no forgiveness of sin. But at the same time, if he simply died but did not come back to life, guess what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15? You're still in your sin. If there is no resurrection from the dead, you are still in your sins. This is why I think it was at that time the, the uh, and, and it still is. Look, folks, they want to believe in the resurrection, I think, and yet many say, but that requires me to believe in a miracle. And guess what? My college professor told me there are no miracles. Sorry. I want you to know that your college professor 
may have that view and that understanding, but if there is no miracles, then don't even say that Jesus was a good man because that makes him out to be a liar. Bottom line. And I don't know, and there may be a lot, there may, you know, professors are getting more bold these days anyway at this point. They don't really care. They might say, yeah, I think he was a liar. But a lot of times they'll say, oh, but he was a good man. I'm sorry, you don't call liars good men. You don't call liars good prophets. You don't call people who have lied. He, he would have lied. He said, I've got to rise again. And you know what? He rose again. They may say that, but brothers and sisters, when it all comes down to it, I want you to know that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the grave. And without the resurrection, you are still in your sins. But thank God that when Jesus said what's going to happen will be fulfilled, it was fulfilled. It did actually happen that he did come out of the grave. Yes, he went to the cross and thank God for the blood that was shed on Calvary. Thank God that he did that. Without it, there is no remission of sins. But equally, thank God that there is a resurrection because the resurrection says, from heaven, I care about you. The resurrection says, from heaven, there is hope for a hopeless world. The resurrection says, I wasn't lying. I said that this would happen. And it happened. We're going to Jerusalem. I want you to see his absolute resolute purpose. That he was going to fulfill. Now, it doesn't mean that it was easy. That's the other thing that we have to remember related to Jesus. It doesn't mean that what he was going to do was going to be easy for him. Uh, it's like what somebody once said, grace is free but it isn't cheap. Grace may be free to you, but it certainly was never cheap. That what Jesus had to do in order to give you salvation, in order to bring salvation to you that you can freely receive of His grace, that you can freely receive of Him, folks, I want you to know He paid the ultimate price. In fact, we see Jesus struggling with it. As he went to Jerusalem, as he goes through, and next week we'll talk about his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We'll talk about that a little bit, and then the next, obviously the following week we'll talk about the resurrection. But as you, you recognize that his journey was, was to this place, the Bible lets us know that on that very night that he had shared the Last Supper with his disciples, that he had shared communion with them, that he had, he had ate that, that final meal with his disciples, and there it was it was revealed that, that Judas was the betrayer. That Jesus once and for all pressed his hand and made him, him come to the surface and, and showed him to be the fraud that he was. And as Judas got up and left that place to go do what it was that he had in his mind to do, to sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver, later on that evening we see that Jesus, in fact, is struggling with what it was that he knew was coming. Because in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he is there and he is praying, we know the story, he is praying this prayer, and Luke points out in his gospel, we're not going to take the time to read it, but Luke points out in his gospel that Jesus was in such agony that he sweat drops of blood, that it was such an agony in his, in his life physically and emotionally 
that there was what appeared to be drops of blood coming out of the pores of his body. He was in such intense agony. Jesus prayed that great prayer. Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I don't think we really comprehend what Jesus was going through in that moment. You see, because we don't have a reference point other than Jesus himself of what it means to be fully God and fully man at the same time. As a man, he knew what Roman crucifixion looked like. He knew what Roman crucifixion meant to the physical body. He knew the suffering that would come, and no amount of his deity would shield him from having to feel the pain and the suffering. He even states in this prophecy that we have read that the Son of Man was going to be flogged. And the Bible lets us know that 39 times he would receive that, that, that cat of nine tails across his back. He would receive all of this. And he would, he would in, in the garden, he would be thinking about what it was that he would be going through and the, the physical pain of the crucifixion. I want you to know there is nothing about Roman crucifixion that was pretty, that was nice, that, would, that looked good, that was, you know, we look at the cross today and we think, oh, thank God, but we don't really comprehend what it was that he was going through. And all of that he knew as he was praying to the Father, here's what I'm going to be going through. But the part of him, the fully God part, also saw this, that all of your sin, all of your rebellion, all of the things that you have ever done in your life that were against God, the sins of all mankind, think about this, would be heaped upon Him. The Bible lets us know that He did not know sin. He was absolutely perfect. He, did, he was not sinful in any way. So for someone who is absolutely perfect and sinless, to have all the sin of mankind heaped upon him. I can't even begin to imagine what that would do in his heart and in his mind. The agony was not just about the physical suffering of Roman crucifixion. The agony was how to deal with, as God, as being fully God, the sin of mankind would be thrown upon him. I can't understand it. I know it theologically. I know that the Bible says that he became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. But I don't, I don't understand it fully because I've never experienced that. I've only experienced the weight of my own sin. And trust me, that was weight enough. When you realize, I know the enemy is at times, especially in our own lives, he has is, he is thrown guilt at us heaped condemnation. Look how rotten you were. Look how sinful you were. How could you call yourself a Christian after that? You know, the enemy, the enemy is so, he's so crafty that way. He, he does his best to bring you down. And we, we sit there sometimes with the guilt, and maybe it was just before you came to Christ, you couldn't handle the guilt and the pain and the, the, the emotional struggle of dealing with, God, I'm, I'm so sinful. The guilt of your own sin. 
Imagine that. And then it from the world. All of it centered on Jesus. He saw that coming, and he prayed, not my will. Thank God he prayed that. But yours be done. Because you know what? If there is anything that we learned about Jesus, it is that he always acted in accordance with the will of the Father. He always did what the will of the Father was. And in that act, he was headed to the cross. He was on that road to resurrection. But in order to get to the resurrection, there has to be a death. In order for there to be life, there has to be death. In fact, the Bible tells us, and it it points this out, that no seed can grow until it falls into the ground and dies. And out of that death springs life. We were just in our garden bed around the house. We were just turning the dirt over from the winter. What a terrible winter this was. And we were just, you know, the the dirt was just all matted down and just crazy. But uh, on the parkway or the, the easement that's owned by the village, uh, in front of our place, there is a maple tree. And uh, <clears throat> every fall, these little, we call them the helicopter leaves, you know, that come up flying off the trees, and they kind of whirl around, and then they land. Well, those come down, and they drive me crazy, because when you're trying to get rid of them in the fall, they're just almost impossible, you know, even with the leaf blower, forget it. But this little, they're, they're seeds, they're actually seeds that come off the maple tree. And yesterday, as we were turning the dirt, we, were, we had some, some, what are they called, perennials that come back every year or something, right? So we have some of those things planted, but we couldn't tell where they were. So all of a sudden, I'm, you know, I'm turning the dirt, and notice there is this sprout coming out of the ground. And I said, well, maybe this is where it is. And Mariella looked at it, and she's like, no, that, that's not it. And I said, so what is this? And then the more I looked at it, It was one of those seeds off of the maple tree that had sprouted. And there were more than one. There was like one or two or three or four or something there. Of course, now Riley has taken and transplanted one on the other side of the house to see if it's going to grow. But this was already sprouting, and it was already growing. These leaves come off the tree. You think they're worthless. They're these little helicopter leaves. You love watching them fly through the air. I hate having to blow them out away because they, they stick to the grass. They don't actually let loose from the grass. They get caught there, and they won't come out, and they look unsightly. But nonetheless, it fell into the dirt, and right there, all of a sudden, sign of spring that's happening, now this little sprout, I'm like a maple tree, like five maple trees were going to grow right next to our house. That's not good for a foundation or all the water we get here in the flatlands, for crying out loud. You know, I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to have these giant maple trees all around the house. But I, I'm looking at it, and it, this seed, it looked dead. It was nothing. And we had a horrible, harsh winter, the cold and the snow and all of that. But out of death was coming life. Brothers and sisters, Jesus was looking forward. He was looking ahead. In fact, let me just read. Go in your Bibles. One more uh, passage of Scripture before we get forward and move forward in this. The Bible says this in Hebrews chapter 12. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. Look at verse 2. This, I believe, is what Jesus was looking forward to when he was in the garden, when he knew he had to be betrayed. He was going to be betrayed later on that evening. He was going to be dragged before the ultimate of kangaroo courts. 
The Bible says, let us fix, verse 2, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Not on each other, not on the pastor, not on the preacher. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Listen to this. Who for the joy set before him, the Bible doesn't say he liked the cross. No, it says he endured the cross. Scorning its shame. It was a shameful thing. It was a shameful thing for anybody, especially anybody in, in, in Judaism or in, as a Jew, to die on the cross. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, but get this, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What was the joy that was set before him? The joy that was set before him was to see the result of the resurrection. The joy that was set before him was the other side of the cross. It wasn't the cross. The Bible says he endured the cross. How could you do anything but until you die? And he died, but there was the death didn't end at all. The death on the cross was not the end. It was not the finish. It was not the completion of everything. That was only the beginning. Because that was the beginning of new life. A seed cannot produce unless it falls into the ground and dies. And then life comes bursting forth. That's what happened in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, because of that, you and I have eternal life. Look at verse 32. He tells them a little bit more of what's going to happen. He says he'll be delivered over to the Gentiles. It's an interesting thing. Oftentimes people look back and they say, well, it was the Jews who crucified Jesus. No, it was both. Jews and Gentiles. Trust me. This in, in, enables uh, us to, to understand that we can't point out one specific group of people and say, well, they're the blame. No, you're to blame. I'm to blame. I'm a Gentile, not Jewish. I'm to blame. I wasn't there, but it was my sin that was heaped upon him. It was my sin that he took upon himself. It was my sin that drove him to the cross. It was the sin of mankind. Brothers and sisters, it's not just one individual. It's not just one group of people. You can't point at somebody and say, well, you crucified. No. We all did. We all had a hand in it. It's, it's Jew and Gentile together. Luke highlights Gentiles in this situation. And he says, Jesus says, he'll be delivered over to the Gentiles, which actually happened. He was delivered over to Pilate. The Jews actually had no power to bring crucifixion to Jesus. Crucifixion was Roman. And only Romans, the Roman governors, could be the ones who would give that sentence. That couldn't come. That didn't come from the law. It didn't come from the law of Moses. There's nothing about the law of Moses that indicates any kind of crucifixion at all. It's a Roman thing. So it had to come from them. They would be handed over. And the Bible says this, in part of this prophecy, they will mock him, which actually happened. They did, in fact, mock him. As those Roman soldiers gathered around the cross, they began to mock him. As they gathered around him and blindfolded him, they began to mock him as well. They began to say to him, who hit you? Come on, prophesy. You're such a great man. You're such a prophet. Go ahead. Tell us who just hit you. The Bible indicates that when they hit him, it was the Greek seems to bear out that it was with closed fists. They were punching out Jesus. 
you're going to be mocked. You will be insulted, the Bible says, and you'll be spit upon. Verse 33, they will flog him and kill him. I think for the most part, when Jesus talked about these things, that's the only thing that the disciples heard. Flogged, mocked, killed. They didn't hear the next part. In fact, remember, you remember just literally the day of, the day that Jesus was going to be betrayed. Luke chapter 22, we won't take the time to read it, but Luke chapter 22 points out the fact that as Jesus was talking to his disciples and, and, and you know, he was saying he's got to go to the death. Jesus, you know, Peter was like, no, that's not going to happen to you. You're not going to die. And what did Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. He wasn't calling Peter Satan. It was Peter was allowing what the devil wanted to actually happen to come true. That there would be no resurrection. There would be nothing related to that because he knows if that doesn't happen, then I've got these people. It's only after the resurrection that you and I can have that newness of life. The Bible says on the third day, verse 33, he will rise again. Guess what? It may be Friday, like one Baptist preacher used to preach. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. I can't do it the way that he did it, but it's Friday, and Sunday's coming. Listen, brothers and sisters, Sunday is all about the resurrection. I guess that's probably why we meet on Sundays. Nothing magical about it, nothing scriptural about it. It's just the resurrection happened that Sunday morning. He came out of the grave. He came out of the tomb tomb and he says on the third day he will rise again almost every time that Jesus talked about his suffering he talked about the resurrection he talked about the fact that he wasn't going to stay on the cross he wasn't going to stay in a tomb but he would come out of the tomb because without the resurrection there is no newness of life he, the Bible tells us that he was crucified for our sins but he was raised for our justification in other words that position that we have with God if you want to understand position read that little excerpt I have in the bulletin from Jack Hayford about us being positionally Put, uh, placed in front of God and being in the right spot with Him. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, we are where we need to be with God, not because we're perfect, not because we're sinless, because none of us are, but because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross and how He came out of the grave. But check out verse 34. The Bible says the disciples did not understand any of this. Why not? It says its meaning was hidden from them, which could sort of indicate that maybe there was a divine hiding that was happening, that somehow that God wasn't allowing them to see and to understand what Jesus was talking about. And yet, I don't think that is what happened says its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. I think their understanding of what was happening here and what Jesus was saying was being filtered through a preconceived idea of what the Messiah is supposed to do. It was being filtered through 
The Messiah doesn't suffer. The Messiah is a conqueror. The Messiah isn't going to be somebody. This is why I believe as we fast forward a little bit and hit Palm Sunday, this is why so many people thought this is now what's going to happen. He is going to rise up. He is going to deliver us from Roman oppression. The Romans are no longer going to be over us. They're not going to be our conquerors anymore. But now the Messiah has come, and He is going to be a great political leader that is going to just kick all of these crazy Gentiles out of Jerusalem. No more of you. Be done. Be gone. The Messiah has come. They're operating on what they want to hear. Think about it for a minute. How many of us do this almost on a daily basis? They filter it through what they want rather than what they must hear and need to hear. Jesus was so plain, he couldn't have been more plain. With what it was that he was conveying, he was going to have to go through. Suffer, die, be mocked, be insulted, be spit at, be flogged, be beaten, go through all of these things, and die on the cross and be raised to life. Now, you would think us here today, we'd say, raised to life, awesome. But they didn't. They didn't make that leap forward. They just said, I don't understand. I I can't, you know, I don't get it. I I can't figure this out. It's like me with math when I was a kid. I sit there at the table trying to do my math. I'm like, I don't get it. I I don't, you know, I don't know how in the world I got through school, honestly. When it came to things like that, I just, you know, I don't get it. Thank God I have children now. They're teaching me math again. But, you know, you 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 just, they, they didn't understand it. Because it was kept from them. And I think it was kept from them because of what it was that they expected the Messiah to do. Brothers and sisters, there are times in our lives where we don't want to hear what God has to say. And when He speaks, we don't get it. And we don't get it because we're expecting something else. We expect another answer. We expect some other situation to occur. And brothers and sisters, sometimes, as we all like to say in our current vernacular, we say it is what it is. You know, we say it, it is what it is. But you know what? The bottom line is it was what it was. They just didn't get it because they were expecting something else. You know what, folks, when it comes to God, you can expect that God will love you. He will take care of you. He will help you. And every now and then, He will, in fact, allow you to go through something that may seem contrary to what it is that you want to hear and you want to believe you should experience as a believer. But the bottom line is, you've got to know that on the other side of that thing, there will be a resurrection for you. There will be something that will occur on the other side of that thing that when you get past it, you will say, I see the hand of God now every step of the way, all the way through it. You might not see it in the moment. You might be expecting something different in the moment, but I want you to know that God loves you so much. He's not going to let you be crushed. He's not going to let you be taken down and out of the game, but He wants you to rise and live. He doesn't want death for your life. He wants life for you. And brothers and sisters, in our lives as believers, I believe it's so important for us to bring life to a world that we live in. 
What is the hope that we have within us? It is none other than Jesus Christ, Him crucified, and as Paul says, risen again. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing more important than this road to the resurrection. In your life as a believer, there is nothing more important. You say, well, I I love to sing those old hymns like we sang today about the cross, about what He did for us. There is a fountain filled with blood. Sounds so crazy to a current society that we live in, and yet that fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, that cleanses and purifies us of all the sin and all the shame, all of those things. I like to focus on that, but listen, i got to tell you, you can also focus from there. You can say, but without the cross and without the resurrection, we have nothing. We can focus on the fact that Jesus is alive. That yes, miracles do happen. I don't care what the professor says. Miracles happen. And if it was that one miracle only, that's all we need. That's all we need to have life and life more abundantly. Thank God for this road to the resurrection. Thank God for what Jesus has done and what it was that He went through. Listen, when He comes to your heart and your life and begins to help you to understand His plan and His purpose, sometimes it may not feel pretty, look pretty, or be pretty. But on the other side of that thing, there will be a resurrection that will occur for you. And you can come out on the other side just like those three Hebrew boys when they came through and came out of the fire. They were no longer bound. They they didn't have the smell of smoke on their garments. They had nothing that looked like the trouble and the trial of their situation. We think there's supposed to be scars. Wrong. When God brings you through, he, He heals. He gets rid of the scars. He gets rid of the things that bind you and he gives you a newness of life let's stand to our feet right now